Great. <clears throat> All right, my my guest this morning, Alex Catcher, has a very special place in the firm because he was my first ever client before the firm even actually existed. And the team of Faha and I, between us, have worked with Alex on five different projects and they've raised, I was totting up Alex, we think we've raised over 20 million pounds <laughs> in the last seven years of equity and commercial debt. Alex is an entrepreneur through and through, a phenomenal generator of creative solutions to everyday problems and some not so everyday problems. And his companies, the companies that he's founded and been involved in, span everything from fitness to logistics and gaming, social media and artificial intelligence. Alex, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much for agreeing to to join. Okay. And perhaps you could give a quick uh, intro to your yourself and what you're up to, and then we can dive straight into. Yeah, I've, I, I'm, I'm an entrepreneur in, in, in a sense. And I think that's just an expression. Really, what I like to do is see, identify new ways of doing things and teams of people who can help make them happen and build a vision or a plan around how those new ideas can come to life and really build the company from there. So what drive what I like doing and drives me is turning a concept into an organization and, and making it happen. And I think any entrepreneur has body has strengths and weaknesses. And I think my strengths are really thinking through the early stage and trying to get through the very difficult Darwinian phase of getting a, a getting an organisation going, and then building a really competent team to grow it from there. So that that's my that's the bit that I enjoy most, and I'm fortunate to have been able to do it several times. Fantastic. And so the first of those times was with Water Out, yeah. which, which is probably a product that people will recognise if they've either if they've seen it in the gym, but if they've watched House of Cards, it's the <laughs> machine that Kevin Spacey gets on to thrash away at the end of every episode in the first series. And uh, so, so tell me a bit about the genesis of the water, because it was quite an interesting business to build because it's, it was a sort of a, a you, you took some IP, you got your acquired some IP, built a, built the product and the business, raised some funds and put everything together in quite a bootstrap kind of way. What was the... Yes, I started doing it when I was when I was in my 20s. And I'd worked in finance before that. And I had various options on the table, one of which was to go and to go to business school. I one day faced I applied and got into business and then met a whole lot of people who I was going to who going to be my cohort, and decided I'd rather start a business and maybe employ one of them one day than to go and do an MBA, which was, I'm not sure whether that was a wise decision or not, but I also worked out, I'd, I'd made enough capital at that point to start something up. I didn't want to lose that opportunity. And I, I gave myself a bit of time to look around and think and see whether it was possible to start a business and really allowed a period of, how shall I put it, not too much pressure looking at different ideas and exploring different things. And really, I knew instinctively that I'd come across something that, that where I thought it was like a sort of itch that needed a scratch. And I looked at, I looked at the fitness market and saw the, the way in which people were building machines at the time. And I thought, these are ugly and they're rubbish. And it seemed to me clear almost instinctively that people are going to start exercising at home as well as gyms because of the way our lifestyles evolve. And so I thought that there was a gap in the market to make something that looked really nice and also would, was functionally better than anything else. And the other thing that, that sort of puzzled me was that all the machines at the time used sort of a flywheel and air resistance mechanism. And I knew enough 
from my from studying physics that that was actually a, a fair sloppy compromise of what happens when you're in the water. So I thought there was an interesting opportunity. And actually, initially, I researched it looking at patents in the then patent library. It's now everything's online. It wasn't online then. And came across a really interesting patent that 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 covered this, which was around a water flywheel. I immediately got in touch with the inventor and we got on really well. And so one thing led to another. Initially, I started helping to develop the market in Europe. And then I got more and more involved in designing the product and eventually built a factory in the U. And then a few years later, ended up we ended up buying out his operation and building up the operation in the US. And that business ended up being sold to the management team in 2007. But the other thing about it is that it did require raising money. And I think that the, the, the Waterer is probably one of the earliest, if not the first in London of, the, of companies that took advantage of the EIS scheme. I read that it had been announced in the Financial Times, um, but there was no documentation available from the Inland Revenue. So I went around to the Inland Revenue Tax Office in Kensington, managed to find the officer who's responsible for managing the scheme and knocked on his door and said, I want to do this. How do I do it? And he was a little bit shocked because none of the paper was actually ready at the time. <laughs> so, so he just walked me through it and I set the whole thing up that way and raised the capital to initially to build the manufacturing plant in the UK and then a little bit of additional capital to eventually to buy out the US operation all under that scheme and it worked extremely well. Yeah. And so the initial capital that you built, so you had some capital of your own which you, you put into yeah. getting things off the ground. Were you yeah. building machines at that point or, or were you? We were assembling them from parts coming in from the US and but it was too slow and one of the things that you learn early on is that pace is everything. Yeah. Uh, and not being able to control the supply and delivery was incredibly frustrating because we couldn't actually meet demand. We ended up setting up an operation here simply to solve that problem. I wanted to take control of the ability to supply. So you went to a group of investors with a nice problem to solve, which was we can't meet current demand. We need more money. <laughs> we need to do a little bit of development. Yeah. And, and we need to scale up. But looking back on it, it was pretty tiny amounts of capital. It was a couple of hundred thousand pounds to get the whole thing going. But yeah. prices were lower that, then. And I, it was actually, we were very, I was very fortunate because I also teamed up with the chap who now runs Waterer, who had worked in automotive supply. And so we actually, early on, had a very sophisticated supply chain management system in place to do that. And so we could see what good looked like versus what we were experiencing from the US. And that really gave us the incentive to, to raise the capital and be a bit more punchy in how we're going to scale the business. Yeah. And so was the UK operations independent from a corporate structural perspective? Or? Yeah. So yeah. we set up, I set up totally as a startup. I was a, um, okay. Yeah. Brilliant. And and the capital came from, was it mostly individual, private individuals? Or? It's all private individuals. And so we didn't do an institutional raise because we became profitable before we needed to. Okay. And I guess the institutional market was probably a bit smaller than it. It is was now. much smaller. It was really for early stage, it was pretty much it was not in nothing like the state it is now. There yeah. were very few venture capital firms that would go in early stage as we needed. Yeah. And so you built like the business up over it sounds like ten, ten or fifteen years that yeah. and then you sold it to management. So that must have felt like a good validation of your decision not to go to business school at that point. It did. And but of course what by the time I done that i'd already i'd already got involved in starting up a few other things too so i think i'd realized that getting things off the ground was my was what i liked doing so yeah. i got involved in a couple i got very excited in the internet got involved in a couple of internet-based businesses 
And in fact, before I sold it, I got involved in a sort of European dot-com startup called, which was eventually called Sportal, that, that didn't succeed. But it was very interesting to go through a completely different scale of money raising. Yeah. Happened during the sort of 1998-99 internet boom time. And what was Sportal aiming to do? Sportal was a sort of internet play to be the kind of hub for sports information and data and mainly to be European wide. So it grew very rapidly from a small office in South London to offices all over Europe and very ambitious plans to have media sports websites and presence everywhere. I was, I was, I'm not sure that I should say this out loud. I was a little bit concerned about the rate of growth. I actually thought that the scale of ambition was faster than the consumer uptake was mm. ready for. And that the overall model looked much more a kind of old school media model where you dominate from the top than a, an internet model where you build it up from the bottom. So I was, I ended up being more, ended up being much more interested in the technology and figuring out ways of making more interactive technology in the internet and the mobile space and ran the advanced technology group. And we built all sorts of really interesting bits of tech, very early stage versions of live school trackers and live voice trackers and things like that, which I then turned into a kind of interactive media business where we were looking at doing mobile gaming. It was way earlier than the market. So that was in 2000, 2000 to 2001. And I set up a little company. I spun that company out of that called Atomic Interactive, which initially did very well. But then the main contracts we were set up to deliver, ended up being delivered on the date of 9-11. And the market completely dried up after that. And I ended up closing the business, which was yeah. frustrating. But I think it's impossible. I think it's almost impossible to be an entrepreneur without a few bloody noses along the way. And painful though it was to have to close a business, I learned a, a, an awful lot about, about how to run things and how to set things up and, and so forth. So it was a kind of useful learning experience, but not something I'd want to wish on anybody. Yeah. And so what size did the business got to that stage? How many employees did you have to deal with on the way up? 15. 15. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. That would think it was a particularly sort of painful period for a lot of for a lot of businesses in the wake it, of the... It, yeah, it was very tough and very uncertain. And the other lesson is that the mood in the market matters. And it's not just with investors, it was also with customers. I had both customers and investors who were really excited about what we were doing, lined up, but the whole kind of geopolitical landscape changed radically and basically no one wanted to make a decision. So yeah. faced with having to play, pay employees, there was, I was left with no choice and I had to close the business. Yeah. That's quite a good analogy for what's happening to now, I would think, yeah. which is the market, funding market for the clients that we're seeing over the last you know, three months has just completely turned on its head from what it was if you were raising in the first quarter of the year to what it, to what it feels like with the war and the combination of rapid yeah. inflation, everyone putting the brakes on quantitative easing and, and the war in Ukraine feels like one of those 9-11-esque moments yes. where things have changed significantly and probably yeah. won't be going back. It's an important thing, I think, for anyone to for anyone who's on in this, trying to do this, to, to, to realise that, that it is you're dealing with a huge amount of uncertainty when you're building a business. The attrition rate is high. Everybody knows that no matter how much effort you put into a business plan, trying to predict the future is a mug's game. And so what does that mean? It means that the decision to invest and is as much instinctive, emotional. And so that means that actually the, the political situation and the general market mood 
does matter. It does affect people's decision making quite profoundly, because if the if there's a general mood of confidence, then people feel more inclined to back an idea. Whereas if confidence is shaken, then caution will override those decisions. And that's why the mood of the market and the political situation is actually very important for economic growth. Confidence really does matter, particularly for the kinds of things that I'm interested in doing. If you're trying to do anything new, it's stating the obvious. If you're cautious, if you're worried about the situation, you're not going to take any risks. You're going to be worrying about the basics. Of course, that's true. Yeah. So it's, and how do you read that? You don't know because things chop and change. You know, we didn't know February the 23rd what was going to happen on February the 29th, and it's made a colossal difference. Yeah. Yeah. So after the water, you, am I right? The next thing that you put together was marmalade. Was that, were there a few things in between? Yeah, I, I did the sports internet business. Yeah. And then after that, I did some consulting. I was helping a family office set up an investment bank in emerging markets. Okay. Uh, and I built the team. We put the bank through financial services regulation. So in a sense, it was a startup. It was, okay, let's service some of these markets and do some deals. So I was doing a lot of deal analysis, building the team and so forth. But I but I got that to work, but I realized my heart was in tech. There was a small company that I'd come across when I was building the business that I had to close down, and I was very impressed with the team and technology. And I met up with them via their investors and went through what they were doing and then said, okay, what's the plan? And there was a kind of blank look around the table. And I said, if, you know, I said to the invest, board of investors, if you don't have a plan, you're going to lose your talent team. You have to have a plan. And maybe I can help you build one. And so I spent six months working with them on a plan. And the area we looked into was the emergence of smartphones and what would that mean? And what kind of content would you have on smartphones? And is there an interesting market to build some technology and tools to, to enable that market? At the time, the the sort of landscape of mobile phones was the problem in the market was that there was a huge sort of fragmentation of operating systems. If you're developing applications and games, it was a complete mess. The thinking we had is maybe there's a clever way of unifying that so you can have a single development platform that can address all of those different handsets. And we could see that the problem was going to become more complex as the handsets became more powerful over time because you'd have more larger code bases. So the focus of the company was to build a, a development system that would enable you to solve that problem. And that's what we did. We set about doing that and built up a business. You know, eventually, the, mar the market did change. The landscape of multiple operating systems was significantly disrupted with the advent of the iPhone, which then changed the landscape entirely. And we've ended up in a situation now where we effectively only have two operating systems, which yeah. is namely iPhone and Android, which change the dynamics of what we were doing so that business is still is still going but it end, ended up focusing more on building content than, than, than on building tools okay um, so building games is that the... yeah exactly yeah. yeah yeah i helped build that up and we did multiple fundraising fundraisings for it and we actually had a studio that we built at the same time which was really successful and we built some of the kind of most successful mobile game titles on the market i think at one point the, I think it was four or five of the top 10 titles on the iPhone list was built by our studio. Really? Well, so that's building them for a developer of the game who comes up with the idea and they come yeah, to the studio. Yeah, so we, we, were, we were a sort of studio that built games for large game companies like Electronic Arts and a bunch of the Japanese companies. We were building games for them as well. They weren't, it was very, it was very different culturally because the American companies were quite happy to have us as a name developer because that's the way that market works. The Japanese publishers were not. 
They didn't like anyone to think that the content was developed by anyone other than themselves. So we had a few run-ins with, with them, but they were, but I, we had, it was very interesting trying to work in Japan and build up the business there and build relationships with Japanese publishers. Um, and was the company self-financing at that point or did you have to raise no, some, we, some we, cash? We, we did multiple fundraising, both both from institutional investors and corporate investors. And we had at one point where I had a Japanese investor who, because we, we were we were the only Western developer to, to work with some of the big Japanese publishers. And again, at one point, we, we had a version of a game called Final Fantasy running on NTT Docomo's network, which was the number one game. So that that phrase raised quite a lot of interest <laughs> from Japanese investors. And the other sort of lesson to draw from that is the importance of having investors who understand the markets that you're operating in. Um, yeah. And that that is, uh, and I'd say that's probably one of the biggest challenges of doing a startup of any deep tech startup, because at an early stage, it's very difficult to get specialist investors that or to find specialist investors to to engage with just simply because of the uh, at an early stage, you tend to have more generalist investors coming in to back a company. But at a certain point, it's absolutely crucial that the management team and the investors both deeply understand the markets you're moving into, because otherwise you get into a situation where you're constantly having to explain to your investors the decisions you're, decisions you're making and also help them calibrate whether or not you're doing things successfully or not. And if you have to explain why you're making a decision the right way, when the investor or anyone for that matter is making a value judgment over whether or not you've, you're, you're making the right decision, if you've got to explain the context for it, you're, you're already on the losing because of course you would explain the context favorably, wouldn't you? And it's a big problem, but it's also, it's something to look out for. And the thing that I find is that is that the more you can try and tune what your strategy to your investors so that you're both you both really understand the market it actually opens up possibilities to bring more capital in from other investors because the ones that the specialist investors tend to give a general confidence and have valuable insights in, in, into the market you're moving into one of the big challenges of being an entrepreneur is how busy you are just running operations and that yeah. doesn't leave as much time as you like for doing the deep market analysis and actually one of the one of the benefits that investors bring to this is that they will be analysing a lot of companies in the sector you might be moving into. Generally, think strategically will be making quite bold moves into particular sectors, and they'll only make those bold moves having done a lot of research. And they have many more resources than you, as an entrepreneur, have to do that research. So, one of the most productive conversations I have had over my time of doing this is with groups of investors who've done more analysis than I have and can ask really hard questions about the markets we're moving into. And I suppose that leads to the third general point is that a mistake that that a lot of entrepreneurs or early people who've not done this a few times before, I think, make is thinking that the relationship between an entrepreneur and an investor is a sort of give-get relationship. And one of the things that an example of this, for instance, would be, I don't know, programs like Dragon's Den, just to, to give you a really simplistic example, where the dialogue around investment is all around how much is the entrepreneur going to give away and how much is the investor going to get. And there's this very sort of simplistic trade happening that the entrepreneur has done really well if he gives very little away, etc. And we all know how that plays out. And it's great for TV drama and all the rest of it. But it's actually terrible for entrepreneurship because, you know, what's really going on is both parties are taking a colossal risk. And the only way that it's going to work is if 
the collaborating, but that you're, it's actually the two of you are building the business together. Uh, and they're bringing the investors, particularly investors who understand the sector well, can and should bring a wealth of experience, not only about the market, but also about the particular management challenges, who key individuals are, how to identify a decent strategy, how to identify really good executive teams, all the rest of it. So you are really building the business together. And the idea that, that's right, the idea that the relationship with investors is give get, I think is quite damaging. It's not like that at all. You are you are really very much on the same side of the table once you're building the business together, particularly when you're going through the scale up period. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I see that with some of the founders, some first time founders that we we work with. They mm. often think too much of it, as you say, in a transactional way. Yeah. And it's we need money, so you know this person's going to put money in, and this is what we're, we're going to sell to them. And then quite often, I think a mistake that they make is is not going back to the investors and keeping them building the relationship sufficiently yeah. in the interim period, both because when they do their new capital, it becomes a bit of a surprise or it's just another transaction, it's just another ask. Um, yeah. But it also, but they miss out on, they've got the right investors, you say they miss out on all that value along the way. <clears throat> I've made all those mistakes. And of course, the hardest thing is, go, is keeping the dialogue going with investors when things aren't going well. Yeah. You want to be going back saying saying with one good news story after the next. But certainly when I've invested, I've said, I'm not really interested in the good news. And that's <laughs> going to take care of itself. You tell me the bad news because that's what needs to be fixed. Yeah. And it's a difficult thing. It's probably one of the one of the big challenges of being an entrepreneur is treading the line between being a visionary optimist or a mad fool <laughs> <laughs> on one hand and being informative or, or putting your investors off on the other. Because... But that's another reason why I think it's important for everyone for everyone to have as much experience around the table as possible and to understand quite how difficult it is to, to build and scale a business. How, how many discrete things have to be got right for it to be successful? But the answer yeah. is a lot. <laughs> a lot, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it seems like there's always a sort of balance sheet of decision-making, which is good decisions and bad decisions, and you just have to yeah. keep the volume moving. The sort of throughput of decision-making has to be pretty high. You just, um, you just and then you've got to try and balance it in favour of yeah. Out. If you can have, you can be. If you can make fifty-one percent of your decisions and forty-nine percent badly, that's actually not a bad outcome. That's, you that's won't that. And it's it, it's very, it's very tricky because very because you're under so much time and resource pressure. That very often you don't have the luxury of analysing things in the depth that you'd like, and sometimes have to just simply act to to keep momentum and move things forward. And that and that's just a fact of. That's a fact of being a small of being a small organization. It, it works both ways. Investors investors need to understand that too and be mindful of not putting too much stress on management teams to come up with endless reams of data about what they're doing simply because the it's they the management team should spend their time managing their team and mm. focusing on customers and just and yes, all the disciplines have to be in place to run things well. But very often just the bandwidth required to to provide the kind of an analysis you might expect from a large company is just not there. When you ask for it, you end up drowning the management team in something that's actually not going to result in, in, in anything particularly positive. And it's tricky because the other thing I think it's important to, to lesson to take in mind is to understand the degree of maturity in the investment team you're talking to. Venture capital companies are sometimes also startups. They can be, they could be a new team that's come together and is doing this for the first time. 
and they don't really know they don't they don't know the good the bad and the ugly and aren't really aware perhaps of what their processes the effect of their processes on a small com- on a small company so that that can be an issue too and that's why more of the, the most important thing is to understand that that the relationship between entrepreneur and investor is is and has to be supportive and collaborative there's no other way to do it and actually if you do get that right it's much more enjoyable as well